I'm Michael Sheridan, Director of Sourcing and Sustainability at Intelligentsia, and you're listening to the Intelligentsia Buyer's Notebook, notes about our coffees and the words of the buyers themselves. We're beginning the second season on the podcast after a brief absence from the airwaves, uh, bringing back our Buyer's Notebook feature for our single origin lineup, which is just really getting into full swing. Uh, at Intelligentsia, and we're here today to talk about Flecha Roja and our Costa Rica offerings with our Costa Rica buyer, Jay Majinski. Hey, Jay. Hey, how's it going? Good. Can you introduce yourself? What do you do at Intelli other yeah. than buy coffee for Costa Rica? So my name is uh, Jay Majinski. I'm the green coffee logistics manager, uh, so I handle all of the all the containers that we import, all the movement of green coffee between facilities, all the inventory, uh, as well as being a buyer for Costa Rica. So how long have you been at Intelli? I've been in, at Intelligentsia for about 11 years now. And buying for how long? Buying since the 2014 season was the first one. And you buy for Costa Rica and, and not only Costa Rica. That's right. And uh, as of very recently, uh, for Rwanda and Burundi as well. We're going to talk today about our Costa Rica and our Flecha Roja offerings. Um, and in order to understand those offerings, we need to really uh, take a minute to understand where they come from. Uh, they come from a cooperative yeah, Jeff Watts, our vice president of coffee, likes to call the, the most progressive cooperative in the world, uh, the best cooperative in the world. I had a chance to see it for the first time last fall when we held the the eighth annual Extraordinary Coffee Workshop in Costa Rica, and Copadota was the host. And I didn't find anything um, to suggest it was anything but uh, the finest coffee cooperative in the world or the most progressive cooperative. It was truly impressive in every way. Uh, and we're here today with Jay Majinski, the Costa Rica buyer uh, for Intelligentsia, to talk about Copadota and its coffees. Let's talk a little bit about just some of the basics of Copadota. How many members has it has it got? Sure. So they've grown to probably just over 900 members now. And do you have a sense of how much coffee they export every year? Uh, Container-wise, like per container, about 40,000 pounds in a container. Um, depending on the season, last year was a really big year, and I think they exported close to 200 containers. Um, this year is, is considerably smaller for multiple reasons, and I would say probably about 120 containers, and that's probably the smallest amount of I've known them to export in, in the last five years or so. What do you want people to know about Copadota? Copadota is just, uh, it's, it's an amazing cooperative. Um, they've, they were founded over 50 years ago, and they're just, um, they're just extremely well organized. Um, everything is run very well. They, they care a lot about themselves and their community and their environment, and um, they, they, they're very innovative. They take extra steps to... to towards quality and towards preservation. And I don't know, there, there's a million things, but there's something really special going on there for sure. So um, they do innovate a lot. Let's just go, um, I always find it helpful uh, to just work from the seed to the cup in terms of like working, making sure we systematically cover all the steps in the process. So um, starting at the seed, uh, highlight some of the things that you consider to be like the most important innovations, just working down the chain. So, well, I guess starting with the seed is, um, you know, starting with new varieties. Um, they work a lot with Cate, uh, the research center in, in Costa Rica, um, with just, you know, trying new varieties that, you know, basically usually start from disease resistant, um, you know, higher producing. Um, there's a lot of, it's mostly Katura and Katsuayi uh, in, in Costa Rica and all over the place. Um, They've recently been making more of a push towards um, more F1 hybrids, more more typicas, um, and and then after that, more 
processes. Um, I guess Costa Rica is kind of maybe famous for like the honey processes. And so they do, you know, all different levels of those. They do naturals. They do, they have multiple drying methods, um, really kind of all the way across. There's, there are a lot of things. Um, so let's go back to the farm. Sure. Um, so the seed, first of all, they get seed from Cartier. Um, Cartier is uh, a tropical agricultural research center based in Costa Rica that is a local partner for World Coffee Research in its uh, breeding initiatives. Uh, we had the chance to visit with some Cartier researchers when we were in Costa Rica. Um, they're getting those hybrids, but it sounds like they're also, are they participating in some of the sort of traditional variety uh renovation programs that are so common? They are, yeah. And, and I think that they've been doing it for quite a while, and I think they've kind of found that um, a lot of the early hybrids that they were using just didn't hold up quality-wise, so they've just kind of abandoned those because that they want to work with quality. They don't want to work with Cottymore or, they, or certain varieties that aren't working. So now they've recently shifted into different varieties with the hopes of you know raising the quality level as opposed to just offering a higher yield or more resistance to Roya or, or, or things like that. And so how do they test those varieties? I, I guess they kind of just started doing that. Um, the co-op owns several farms themselves, so those are kind of like the testing grounds because they can kind of do whatever they want there. Um, you know, traditionally one of the kind of problems with a co-op is that you can have these awesome agronomists and, and all these awesome ideas coming through, um, but you can't make 500 farmers all do the same thing. They're kind of kind of do what they want. But if the co-op owns the farm, then they can kind of do what they want. So th that's kind of where all of these things happen. So there's a few different um, co-op-owned farms where they just experiment with everything from pruning techniques to nutrients and royal resistance and, and, and varieties. Um, and so that's really where all that happens. And how do they use the farms as a way to educate members? Is it that they're managed in isolation? Do members in a sort of systematic way go to visit the farms? How do they convey the knowledge that they generate on the farm to their membership? Sure. I think kind of both of those, really. So they kind of, it seems like what they do is they kind of do all these different things at the farm, and then when they see that something works, they either bring people to it or they bring that to the farmers um, and to, to kind of show the results. Or they, you know, they experiment with things, and if it's worked for a couple of years, like they, they have a new vermicomposting program, um, which they started at one of their farms, they found out it works, and then they, you know, brought the farmers and said, "Here, look how, look how this works. Look at the benefits. And now here's, now we can give you, you this to use as well. So it's kind of a both. It's kind of a all in yeah. one. You know? So um, I've been working in the coffee lands on and off for about 20 years, and I, most of my initial work was with cooperatives in Central America, and um, I've seen a lot of them, and I've never seen anything like what we saw together in Costa Rica this year on the experimental farms. Just the the quality of the work, the scope of the work, the experimental farms, first of all, were huge. Um, they were incredibly well managed. The plant vigor was was really remarkable. Um, and it was so systematic, I thought, the way they had set up the experiments, the way they were structuring them, the way they were carrying them out, the record taking. Um, and so that alone is like this unbelievable asset for a cooperative to have and to manage that well. Um, and it's not just, as you say, it's not just that they're um, doing experimentation there. They're actually doing production there. So we'll talk a little later on about some of the coffees we've sourced um, from Copadota this year, including coffees from the experimental farm. So they're, they're, it, it's an amazing undertaking. And um, on the blog post that accompanies this podcast, we'll have some photos of the farm so uh, people can really appreciate just how uh, 
truly exceptional that is. But you've raised another point, which is uh, you can bring growers to the farm. You can also take the lessons learned on the farm to the growers. So tell me about the extension system that um, that that Copadota has with the agronomists. How do they uh, how do they push out what they learn on the farm? To start with, I don't think everyone even really wants to know. You like you know some some farmers are just they want to do what they're doing and that's the thing. But there seem to be uh, quite a quite a bit that do. Um, like for example, um, you know the the co-op owned farms, and so these farms and and it's interesting because there there's a few and and some of them like you were mentioning you were speaking of El Cedral I assume uh, which is just this am- amazing place but there's also Finca de Dota which is like kind of behind the mill tucked away and like hey kind of don't go over there because that's where all these almost like some failed experiments are and it's not all that attractive to look at but th- this is where you know things are learned and, and, and spread out so a lot of that um, ties into how they will bring people that one that one being right at the mill everyone's coming to the mill to deliver so you can bring people right back um, and then the other thing that they'll do is bring, um, you know, when they working with their micro lot program, they really have really honed it down to like only ripe cherry, no, no green and, and just trying to make sure that everything, every delivery is that same. And, and so what they'll do is they'll start with the, the co-op owned farms and say, look, here it is. This is, here's a full truck with nothing but ripe cherries. It can be done. Here's how you do it. And we'll go ahead and do that for however many times just to show everyone and like, come and see it and they've got pictures posted and so it's kind of you know it's it's easy to get people involved and engaged if, if they want to be and yeah. there seems to be you know based on what i've seen over the last couple of years and the way those, these things change there, there are people who are engaged and, and who want to be okay so we we've talked about seed we talked a little bit about experimental farms we're getting close now to mill you mentioned the the micro lot program uh can you talk about that explain how that works and uh how the the co-op differentiates um its general offerings from its micro lot sure. offerings? Sure. So the, um, there are literally and physically just two separate mills um, at, the, at, at the facility. Um, one is just a, a very large scale um, kind of traditional mill um, where the vast majority of the daily harvest is, is dropped off. Um, and then there is a separate mill, um, much smaller with a much smaller drop-off area, um, that is the micro lot mill. Um, which and these are basically day lots, so uh, cherry. Uh, day cherry. lots of cherry. Um, generally, generally, it's it's per region. They they kind of have it uh, plotted out where like you know certain regions, certain areas will bring on certain days, um, and generally could be two or three producers, could be three or four. Sometimes just one if they find one specific lot, um, they'll pull it aside, um, and so all of that is is, is treated. Uh, is processed entirely separately, um, and now they're to the point where they they won't accept any any green cherry, any overripe, um, anything. And I've I've seen um, I've seen trucks turned away like literally for like two green cherries in a whole truckload. Um, when a grower gets turned away for two green cherries in a, in a truck, where does it go? It goes to the other sure. door and so, drops yeah. off at the regular mill. So if, if people get turned away, what happens is they just go right around the corner and they drop it into the main. Um, drop-off area, which then, um, you know, those those underripes will get taken out through the process, uh, uh, through the milling process. How are farmers selected to participate in the micro-lot program? So you mentioned there are 900 growers. Presumably, uh, a lot of them want to participate in the micro-lot program because presumably um, it delivers better prices. How are growers selected? How are payments made? How are payments different from the coffees that are dropped off around the corner at the regular mill? 
Sure. So um, I would say probably initially the the farmers were just selected um, by Roberto and other people that kind of knew like, hey, here's where the the good stuff's coming from. Here's where there are good um, practices. Um, Here's where we've seen good cherry. Um, I think probably at this point the the farmers are kind of selecting themselves. They they've seen it work. They they've they've seen what it can be like, and and so they're working towards that. Um, and that's kind of the the kind of um, you know air quote rules uh, of how that works has changed over the years. Um, currently, the, the kind of the protocol is that you are allowed each farmer is allowed only three drop offs. So you can't just bring a micro lot every day because that's not fair to everyone else, right? Um, conversely, you're allowed three rejections. So if you come three times with a coffee that doesn't get accepted, you're not allowed to come back three anymore. Three strikes and you're out. Three strikes and you're out. And how long are you out for if you're out? Forever? Uh, for the season. Okay. Just for the season, yeah. Um, and that's to kind of just give everyone a chance, you know, because like you said, with that many farms, you obviously and, and 60 day lots, you, not everyone is going to be involved. Um, but I think it's really kind of... You know, I think it's it's a lot of hard work. It's extra work. It's it's not as easy as just picking a truckload and dropping it off. Um, but there are certainly plenty of, of farmers who want to participate in that and that are excited to do it and that we've seen year after year repeating themselves. Can you talk a little bit about Roberto, who just stepped back uh, from the general manager role after more than 20 years at the home? Sure, yeah. I mean, Roberto, uh, besides just being a fantastic and wonderful person and having a huge heart, and all those great things um, is just incredibly smart and, and incredibly innovative. And just, it's like, even just the four or five years that I've known him, it's just idea after idea after idea. There are a lot of, we, we live in an age where we celebrate the idea guys and uh, the women who come up with ideas. Um, but it's that's one skill. Another skill is turning those ideas into action and getting results. And um, he's both generated ideas and, and driven results, um, driven them into practice. We saw one of them, um, one of the most prominent and spectacular ones on display during ECW last year, and that's the Ruedota. Um, can you talk about the the coffee Ferris wheel that sure. Roberto uh, came up with, and and a little bit about where the idea came from, and how he turned that wild idea into a reality? I think it was three years ago when I was there, and he had this uh, very small scale model. Um, it was I don't know, maybe about two feet tall, and it just it literally looked like uh, a Ferris wheel. Um, and, uh, and instead of seats, it had basically trays, um, and it had a little hand crank to turn it around, and it had parchment on it. And it was just kind of off in the corner in the drying patio. And, uh, you know, Roberto said, Jay, come here, check this out. You're going to love this. Because he knows I love all his his, his ideas. And uh, I said, what is this? <laughs> and he said, so, yeah, this is, uh, this is a drying wheel. He said, and I was like, where how did where'd you come up with this idea? And he said, well, I was in London, and I was on a Ferris wheel, and I just thought, if we can put people on these things, why can't we put coffee on these things? <laughs> so I said, okay, but, you know, why? What? You know how is this? And he said, "Well, this you know this is a small model, but I'm going to make this. I'm going to build it eight, ten meters high, uh, you know, and it's going to take up this small footprint, and it's going to have all this, you know, you, it's going to provide shade sometimes and airflow." And I just, okay, yeah, cool, Roberto, whatever. And we kind of just moved on, and then, and then uh, the, the the following year, right before my trip, um, Yvonne Solis, the the uh, the mill manager, sent me a picture and he said, "Rueda de Chicago is ready." And he sent me a picture and it, and it, sure enough, it was this same thing, only it was uh, you know, 
10 feet, 12 feet tall, maybe 15 feet tall, uh, and, and, it, and it was functioning. And, and, of course, I thought, oh, Rueda de Chicago, that's, that's pretty awesome. You guys named it for us. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't realize that this is, you know, this means Ferris wheel to them because Ferris wheel was uh, first introduced at the Chicago Fair. Um, so, yeah, and now, now it's, it's, it's up and functioning. There's, there's only one of them, but there's plans for more. Um, it runs on a small uh, electric motor that um, this year they're replacing to be solar-powered. Um, and basically, you know, the, the idea is, like I said, it's, it's, it, it, it takes about three minutes for one rotation. Um, you've got about one bag, bag volume-wise of green coffee per tray and about a dozen trays um, so you not only have airflow from both sides, but as it's turning, you kind of get partial shade sometimes, sun, shade, sun. Um, and and the, the main advantage is that, you know, they're really, there's a lot of coffee that passes through there, and there's the limited space on the patio, and they do have some drying beds. Um, but this, you know, the, the, um, the footprint of this would have, you know, a tenth of that amount of coffee in that space. So he kind of basically, he just went vertical to, to save the space. So we've spent some time talking about Roberto, and um, I think he's very clearly uh, a leader, um, and he's been a leader of the co-op for a long time. But so much of that, what good leadership is, is instilling uh, values and practices that outlive your your tenure. And I think um, one of the things that I was struck by on my first visit to Copedota uh, was that there is a culture there of quality. Um, and I refer there to both the sensory quality of the coffee, but also the quality of people's engagement um, with the cooperative, with their communities. Um, and you, over your period of buying um, in Costa Rica, became familiar with something called the that you call the X factor, um, that they call the X factor, um, which to me really speaks to this idea of um, institutionalized practices, that the commitments that Roberto may model and may have championed are really embraced at every level of the cooperative. I'm going to ask you, um, even if it means you have to read uh, read them, sure. I'm going to ask you to talk about the, the X factor and the X policy. Sure, yeah. So the X factor, which um, they call X5, I should have brought my glasses. Um, so yeah, they, they have this policy called the X Factor or X5 for short. And um, I, I just kind of started seeing it around because they have it, they kind of literally have it everywhere. They have on their, um, on their work shirts, it says X5 on the sleeve, and they have just uh, the X5 um, signs up everywhere at the mill, in the offices, um, at the, even at the remote cherry drop-offs. Um, and so of course, you know, out of, curious, I asked Roberto, you know, what is this? Um, and he said it's it's kind of like you know uh, a lifestyle that the co-op members are encouraged to to follow, um, and I think really this it, it really does kind of speak to why there's some magic at Copadota and why there's so much heart um, at at Copadota, um, and so basically what that is X five so there are five factors um, to be taken in the order of X one is to take care of yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually, and be happy with who you are and what you do because you have to have that before you can move on to anything else, right? Um, X2 is to take care of your families, um, to work for stable and good family relationships, um, for a stable economy, good communications. Um, so that's kind of the next step, yourself, then your family, 
X3 is the community. Take care of your community. Work together. Keep good harmony with each other. Uh, X4 is to take care of Copadota. Be as productive as you can. Um, suggest anything that you can that might help the partners make things easier and better for the company. Be innovative. Um, and then X5 would be the environment. Take care of the environment. Make it cleaner, better, friendlier, safer than it was before. Um, and, and that's a very, I guess, you know, brief explanation. But that's kind of, you know, something that was... It's funny because it seems like, oh, here's this, like, lifestyle we want you to live by. But really, kind of people are already living by that anyway, right? Um, so that kind of just harnessed it all in and helped promote it. And they kind of tweak it and update it every year. And Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so this was part of it. This was a formal sign that was part of a formal process that was formally adopted uh, by the co-op. And um, I think it's exciting to think that uh, leadership can change, but the culture that leaders have instilled over the years will survive, and that will be the sort of anchor of Copadota's engagement moving forward. Another sign, which was less formal, that you also saw uh, over the years on your visits to the mill, um, which I think is an unbelievable uh, statement of the values of the cooperative and uh, point of aspiration for all of us committed to uh, coffee and coffee quality. Sure. So the, the the sign that you're talking about is um, it was in a, a section of the the mill that is the uh, the pre-drying section, um, which was kind of a separate building. Um, I had been in there a couple times, maybe, and without really noticing it. Um, there's uh, basically it's a hand-painted sign, and and I asked Roberto, you know, what what is this? Because it didn't at the time it didn't have the X5, it didn't have any kind of like logo and. It was just kind of, and my Spanish wasn't great, so maybe I didn't understand it uh, 100%. And he said, oh, yeah, um, Andre, the, the the operator in here, asked, hey, can I, I've got this quote that I'd like to paint. Can I can I make this sign? And Roberto said, yeah, of course. The sign says that there are machines that can do the work of 500 men, but there is no machine that can do the work of one extraordinary man. And I just thought that was like, kind of the awesomest thing to see, especially in this huge room that's filled with all this like machinery and there's one guy running this in a 12-hour shift. Like You would think there'd be like five people in there and it's this one guy doing it. Um, and it just seemed very fitting. It, it just kind of harnessed that X5. It, it harnessed Copadota's spirit. Uh, and so last year when I was there, I said, hey, Roberto, can I, can I commission Andre to... to paint one of these signs for me. It's awesome. I want to. And he said, no, no, this is, this sign's for you. This is for intelligentsia. And so this is the sign that I, I came home with after my last buying trip. Yeah. And the mill itself, um, the mill itself reflects the cooperative's commitment to environmental sustainability. Um, can you talk about the energy efficient uh, machinery they have, the water efficient machinery they have, and the overall uh, commitment to carbon neutrality. Yeah, so um, Copadota is carbon neutral certified. Um, they have been since 2011. And they are actually the first coffee producer to become carbon neutral uh, certified. And this is for green and uh, roasted coffee beans. Um, and they've really kind of, you know, pushed the limits of what they can do and, and what is necessary in order to obtain that. Um, you know, they, they reduce their power from by about 85% uh, 
during like lunch and dinner hours because people need the power to, to cook food um, and because they, they have the ability to do that. So we're slowly working our way from seed to cup, and we've gotten to the ruedota, and now we've got dry parchment. Um, I think we're almost at the point where we can talk about our coffees uh, for this year that you sourced, um, some of which were grown on El Cedral, the experimental farm we've talked about, and right. some of which were dried on the ruedota. Yes. So what have we got for people to enjoy? So, yeah, we have several uh, different lots. We do we have the separate micro lot this year from El Cedral. Um, over the last probably five years, I'd say probably four of those years, El Cedral has been involved in Flesha Roja uh, in some way, usually milled together with other coffees. Um, and this year we just happened to find this one small awesome lot that's uh, processed as a red honey um, that we kept separate. Um, and then we also have uh, micro lots. So all of the Flesha Roja comes from the micro lot program, the micro lot mill. Um, and we've got some from about four different areas, um, areas that we tend to buy from very regularly. So we've kind of honed in and found what we like and what people like and, and sourced from those areas. So the El Cedral lot is the Red Honey Limited Release, is that right? That's correct, yes. Yeah. So it's not a nano lot, but it is a short run and it's not going to be on the menu long. No, it'll so. probably be gone by the time you hear this. It won't be on the menu long. Uh, it will be a race between our audio production team here and our roasting team to see whether the That's whether correct. the podcast reaches people's ears before the coffee reaches people's lips. But it's delicious. It is delicious, and unfortunately, there is not too much of it. We bought all of it, um, but it, it's a wonderful lot. And so our last uh, podcast was about our iMark program, and uh, Fletcher Rojas has the iMark for Costa Rica. You alluded to it, but um, how does it work when someone walks into a coffee bar or goes onto our website and orders a Fletcher Roja coffee? What are they ordering? It's not a single lot. It's a series of lots, right? Describe how that works. Yeah, that's correct. So actually, sometimes it's either. Right now, it is a series of lots. So basically, what we do is we, um, like I had mentioned before, the the microlot mill it, is all day lots, so it's literally, you know, one lot is from one day's um, harvest. Um, so what we, we do is we get samples of all these, and we probably cupped about 60 different lots this year, um, and then we kind of just build them together um, based on profiles that we think fit together and that will do well together into one bulk lot that we then offer as the, the, the flesh of Roja, and we kind of do that in increments as the harvest goes on. I think uh, the honey process in general is pretty popular in Costa Rica. Um, I don't know if they were kind of ones to, to pioneer that um, and kind of hone it in. Um, but essentially, you know, when the, the pulp is removed f from the, the bean, some of it's left on in this honey process. And I, I, I think, I feel like it's a little bit loose as to what's called, you know, there, some people have, you know, five different honeys. Honeys, it's white and it's yellow and it's red and it's purple and it's black. Um, but basically it's just a visual indicator kind of how much of that fruit is left on um, on the parchment. So if, if you have a yellow honey, it's a little bit less. If you have a red, it's a little more. If it's black, it's kind of closer to what a, a natural processed coffee would be. Um, and that's something that Copadota... I think, you know, they kind of just used to call it honey process because to them that's what it was, and I think people started putting tags on it. And I guess there is something to, to be said for the amount of fruit that is left on there because it is a visual, kind of a visual indicator. Jay, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. 
Will you come back uh, when the Rwanda and Burundi's arrive and talk to us about those? Absolutely. Exciting things on the horizon with that. Awesome. Um, thanks to Andy Atkinson for producing this episode. This is The Buyer's Notebook. <laughs>